Revelation. So open your Bibles, Revelation 22, uh, Revelation 22, and uh, right at the end of the book of Revelation. Now what we've been doing, as many of you all know on Sunday evenings, is, is we've, we've looked more broadly at, um, uh, have you found my PowerPoint up there? Yeah, that's my fault. Um, is, is we've been looking at broad themes in Revelation. So rather than give you like exegetical, this means this, this means that, uh, we want to look at broad themes. So, and we want to see Christ through it all. So we've looked at Christ as creator, redeemer, judge, uh, uh, the issue of empire, uh, particularly as it relates to Rome and history and, and the future. Uh, we, we've looked at a host of issues. And I want us to, to conclude our series of, of, of looking at Revelation this way by really looking at um, one of the main themes of Revelation. Uh, in fact, we've already almost covered it in the series itself. But I want to zero in on it and, and mention some things we haven't mentioned yet. So Revelation 22, last page of your Bible, I'm, I'm guessing it is for me. With that, if you will stand with me, reverence to God's Word, we'll read two verses. John writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as always, we ask you to open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears, our hands, our feet, our mouth, that we would be transformed by the gospel. So Lord, help us to wrestle with these issues of, of worship and apply them to, to our lives. Would you be so kind to us? And may I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. You see it. Well, if, you, if you've been trekking with us on Sunday evenings, you know that we've been beginning each week by looking at um, someone in our past. Uh, really, I, I think within the last 200 years, everyone we looked at, some, some within the last 20 years, who have predicted the end of the world by reading the Bible and were utterly and completely wrong. Well, as you can imagine, uh, there are countless examples of Christians who have done this. Can we look at just a few more briefly, and then, then I want to uh, really round it out. Uh, you want to know who this cat is? None other than the Christian Broadcasting Network head, and that is, of course, Pat Robertson. Uh, Pat Robertson is, is an interesting character. I won't say more than that at the risk of getting in trouble. But in 1976, he predicted that the world would end in November of 1982. Later in his book, 1990, so he's eight years after that false prophecy, the book is entitled The New Millennium. You can read it yourself. He said the world will be destroyed on April the 29th, 2007. Now, where do you get the date 2007? Well, remember Jesus says that uh, this generation will not pass until all these things are fulfilled. And the question is, what does the terms this generation will not pass really mean? And from a dispensationalist perspective, often it says that when Israel returns to uh, their homeland, which happened in 1948, which is why you get 88 reasons why Jesus will return in 1988. That's a real book. I've read it. It's well worth your reason in the public domain. Others say, no, the date started on, in 1967 when uh, after the Six-Day uh, uh, War, Israel uh, took over Jerusalem. And so you start the clock, 40 years is a generation. There's not a verse that says that, but you can, that, that's the idea, that's the thinking. So that has to be 2007. Well, of course, that did not happen. He also more recently 
and by recently I mean last, I think it was October, maybe early November, predicted that President Donald Trump would win re-election in 2020, followed by a period of real chaos. He said that after that election, China, North Korea, Russia, and others will make war against the United States. In addition to that, we would see civil disobedience unlike anything we had ever seen, and there would be two attempts on the president's life. I'll let you decide whether or not those prophecies will come true. But it isn't just your boy Patrick Robertson. Anyone know who this cat is? This one will probably get me in trouble. Um, my first year here, uh, still the new guy had that new pastor smell and everything. I had about a dozen people in this church and outside the church, so not just East Frankfurt folk, ask me, Preacher, what do we do with this blood moon stuff? You remember that? And the thinking was that when you have blood moons, something significant happens with Israel. And I don't, I don't want to spend forever on John and Haggai and the blood moons. But from what I can tell, the blood moons have passed and not really anything of significance has, has happened as a result. Uh, he applied the blood moon, blood moon idea to end times predictions. Uh, you can do more research on that. But th these were big sellers for about five years. And every time there was a blood moon, he'd be right there on CNN or CBN or wherever. Uh, oh, there should be a picture in there. Oh, that's unfortunate. Um, and, and it was going to be a Y2K prediction. I had a Best Buy ad in there. You remember Y2K? I remember every year growing up, uh, we, we, we did for New Year's Eve, uh, we had a candlelight service to pray in the new year. I always enjoyed it. It was a great time at the church. I remember transition from 1999 to 2000. We're all in there in the dark. We turn all the lights out. We got our candles, right? And we're praying, and you'll hear someone's watch go off at midnight. We had to do that, so we make sure we were praying. And when that goes off, everyone looks up thinking, is a plane going to fall out of the sky and land on top of us? Right? You remember Y2K? When I worked at the store in, in Louisville, for, for you outsiders, um, we still sold Y2K, Y2K um, uh, kits. But I started working at the store in 2006. They were on clearance, but we couldn't figure out why no one was buying them. We couldn't return them to the manufacturer. They didn't want to have anything to do with them. So they, we just kept them in the store hoping somebody would buy it. And I don't know what, 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 what came of it. Um, then there's Ronald Weenland. He is the founder of the Church of God Preparing for the Kingdom. That's the title, Church of God Preparing for the Kingdom. It's an offshoot of, of the Worldwide Church of God. He claimed that he and his wife were the two witnesses of Revelation. Remember that uh, uh, in Revelation, you got those two witnesses. They can breathe fire out and they can stop the heavens and all that. Um, furthermore, they claimed that they were collectively the Elijah prophesied at the end of the Old Testament, Malachi 4. In 2008, they wrote, or he wrote, quote, The final countdown has begun as the 1,335 days before the actual day of Jesus Christ returns began on September uh, the 30th, 2008, which means the end was supposed to take place May 27th, 2012, which was the day of Pentecost. When the end didn't occur, in case you were unaware of that, he assured his followers that the end had occurred, as the way it always works, on that date, um, but... The ultimate fulfillment would, have to take, would take place a year later. Well, a year later, it didn't happen. So he, he said, well, it's still going to happen in the near future. Let me give you just one more since we're round, rounding out these, these false predictions. And it is, it is my personal favorite of, of all of these. And I don't have the picture up there, and that is unfortunate. It just didn't say for some reason or it's not translated from my computer to, to this computer. 
What I had up there was two covers of Time magazine. One said, prepare for global warming. The other said, the coming ice age. Now, you may be aware of this. They're, they're the cover, real covers, about 30 years apart. One is warning you of uh, Sid the Sloth is coming with the ice age. The other is warning you that we're all going to die in heat in summer. Well, that is, we, we, we've talked a lot about Christians falsely predicting the ends. But isn't just a problem with Christianity and and specific Christians and movements. This is a problem with humanity. Let me give you a few examples of secular false predictions. We can call these echo-apocalyptic predictions. The first one is overpopulation. Some of you may have uh, remembered the overpopulation warnings of the 1960s and 70s. Remember what what it was? was The concern was that birth rates were happening so fast, and and because of modern medicine and everything, that that population was getting too much. We're going to eat up all the resources and all that, and we're all going to die, right? You may remember some of this. Well, in case you didn't know, that didn't happen. Let me give you some headlines here. 1970, world will use all of its natural resources. 1966, oil will be gone in 10 years. 1972, oil completed in 20 years. Uh, 1967, LA Times, quote, dire famine forecast by 75. Let me read this, this article to you, at least the first two paragraphs. It is already too late for the world to avoid a long period of famine, a Stanford University biologist said Thursday. So clearly it must be true. He has a degree. Uh, The biologist said, quote, the time of famines is upon us and will be at its worst and most disastrous by 1975. He said the population of the United States is already too big, that birth control may have to be accomplished by making it involuntary and by putting sterilizing agents into staple foods and drinking water, and that the Roman Catholic Church should be pressured into going along with routine measures of population control. By the way, that is essentially the history of the 20th century in the West. In 1969, uh, uh, well, I'll skip that one. And then, of course, there was the Ice Age, 1970. An Ice Age was coming by the year 2000. 1971, they predicted that the Ice Age was coming by the year 2020. In 1972, they predicted it's coming by the year 2070. 1974, space satellites show a new Ice Age was coming fast. 1976, scientific consensus, planet is cooling, famines are imminent. 1978, no end in sight to the 30-year cooling trend. Of course, this is replaced by the opposite. 1988, temperatures in D.C. will hit record highs. 1989, rising sea levels will obliterate nations if nothing done by 2000. 1989, New York City's West Side Highway underwater by 2019. In 2000, children won't know what snow is. 2002, famine in 10 years if we don't give up eating fish, meat, and dairy. 2004, Britain will be Siberia in 2024. 2008, Arctic will be ice-free by 2018. 2008, Al Gore predicts ice-free Arctic by 2013, later moved it to 2014. 2009, Prince Charles says we have 96 months to save the world. 2009, UK Prime Minister says 50 days to, quote, save the planet from catastrophe. Finally, 2014, only 500 days before climate chaos. This is a human problem, isn't it? We, We think we can predict the end of the world. But there's only one text in all, of all the world that has actually done it, I believe. But, but, but it does it without giving us a date, but to call us to patiently anticipate the coming of Christ. So with that said, let's, let's look at this, this major theme in the book of Revelation. Because if, if we miss these major themes, we're going to get distracted by these false predictions. And I don't want us to do that when it comes to Revelation. Let's start here with the... Uh, Simple point of worship. 
The central issue of Revelation is the issue of worship, I believe. It's very obvious when you read through it, but it's easy to overlook that, isn't it? It's easy to get distracted by judgments and wars and battles and natural phenomena, supernatural phenomena, apocalyptic imagery, suffering of believers, trumpets and woes and bowls and seals and horses. And it's, it's easy to get distracted by all those details that we miss the core issue. And the core issue is, is that we in this world are called to do one thing, and that is to worship the risen Savior. Therefore, the point of revelation is not politics or economics or history. The core issue is worship. In fact, when you look at revelation, everyone in it is worshiping. Start with the divine beings. You remember then we meet them, 24 elders and the four living creatures and all these wild sort of, sort of beings. I use the phrase divine beings as a, as a sort of a, a covering for a general term for a lot. Revelation 5.14, the four living creatures said, Amen. We talked about that this morning. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Who are the elders? Who are four living creatures? I don't know, but there they are worshiping. Chapter 7, and all the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders, four living creatures, and they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. In chapter 11, and 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. Chapter 19, the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. Notice here, these, these beings, whoever they might be, whatever they might represent, but whatever, these beings are always seen in obedience to Christ, but primarily in worshiping of the Savior. It is the Lamb we talked about who is in the center of, 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 of the scenery on the throne and they in unison fall down and worship. Their primary function as divine beings is that of worship. But of course, it isn't just them. It is also martyred saints we see worshiping Christ. In chapter 6, we, we see this. He opened the fifth seal. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God, for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you would judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They were each given a white robe. We talked about that white robe this morning. And told to rest a little longer till the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves have been. Notice here, they were under the altar, a place of worship, crying out to their Redeemer, crying out to the one who would avenge them. So we see the martyred saints. Thirdly, isn't it obvious that Christians are called to worship? Have you ever heard of the seven letters to the seven churches of Revelation? I mean, the whole premise is proper worship, isn't it? This is why Jesus is correcting what they get wrong and praising them for what they get right. The whole point is worship. Is it too elementary to say as Christians we're called to worship Jesus? Is that too elementary? I think for some it, is. it isn't, actually. Finally, the wicked world worships in Revelation. This may be a surprise to some of us, but it's everywhere. Chapter 9, verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see, hear, or walk. I'm glad that doesn't happen today. Chapter 13, they worship the dragon. He had given his authority to the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Notice that the worship of the beast is the worship of the dragon. Chapter 14, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. And these worshipers of the beast and its image, whoever receives the mark in its name. Thus, Revelation proclaims what we already know, isn't it? To be human is to be a worshiper. 
I think I used this illustration before, but a few years ago I was watching an English Premier League game. I I like soccer, forgive me. But we could do this with any sport. But I remember it just really stuck out to me. I don't understand English culture. I've never been to England or anything like that. But soccer they take very, very seriously. And I remember watching the game, and all of a sudden, in unison, without an announcement from the, 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 the announcer, everyone stood up, raised their hands, and started to sing what we would call a hymn. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's a song for a player, for the team, whatever. And they all sent it up, arms raised, singing. Now, if a Pentecostal did that, what would you call it? If a Southern Baptist did that, you would call them a recovering Pentecostal. But nonetheless, what you would call that is worship. Worship. Think about it. You can go to a, a basketball game. You can go to a football game. You, 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 can, you can go to the movie theater. And what you're going to find is the, the, the attitude and the positioning of worship. We were created to worship. Scan your personal budget and your expenditures. It will tell you what it is you value most. Evaluate your schedule. What do you spend your most time doing? Meditate on things in your life. And, and what is it that you could not risk losing? And to lose it would mean to lose your very identity. That meditation will show you what it is that you worship. Where does your heart, your emotions, your desire, your dreams, where do they lie? We were created to worship. The question of Revelation isn't, are we worshipers, but what do we worship? Now, this has immense implications of our day and time. Although we spend a lot of our time as Americans fighting over ethics and politics and cultural trends and legislation and celebrities and personalities and morality, we are really fighting over worship. We're really fighting over worship. That which we worship, we will fight for. That which we worship, we will die for. So the theme of worship is very clear in the book, but, but really what John wants us to do is to worship the right way. Worship the right Savior the right way. So it isn't the existence or lack thereof of worship, but proper worship. This is why Revelation repeatedly condemns idolatry in general. So in chapter 9, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of their works, the hands given up worshiping demons and idols, gold, silver, right? We saw that. Right? This is idolatry. You, you've turned good things into God things. Or chapter 21, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion is like a fire. Notice there, at its core is that of idolatry. Same thing in chapter 22, outside are the, are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral murderers and idolatry. It's not an accident. The last thing mentioned is that of idolatry. So Revelation frequently condemns false worship. Let me give you specific uh, false worship it condemns. First of all, it condemns false religion. If you don't believe me, I encourage you to read the seven letters to the seven churches. How often does Jesus say, look, look, this teaching here isn't right and it is dangerous and it will lead you down a dangerous path. Chapter 2, verse 2, you have tested those who call themselves apostles, but they ain't. That's the Kentucky James Version. And found them to be false. They say this, but they've denied the faith. Chapter 2, verse 14. I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a assembly block for the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual morality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, the Nicolaitans are, are mentioned twice in the seven letters to the churches. The first to Ephesus, and here I believe this is Smyrna. 
In chapter 2, verse 20, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing by servants to practice sexual immorality, eat food, sacrifice to idols. Notice here the issue is you have denied the gospel. This is false teaching, which is false religion. So within the church, there is a constant threat of compromise and deception. This false worship is false religion. The implication is the importance of vigilance within our churches. Discipleship rooted in sound doctrine is a vital work of the local church among its members. But isn't just false religion Revelation warns us about? How about false empire? Now, here we are. It's the year 2021, in case you forgot. Do we have an issue in our country with the worship of empire? Does anyone remember the year 2020 around, the, around November, building up to it and coming out from it? Anyone remember that? How can you not? Because we're still complaining about it, aren't we? Even if you won, you're still complaining about it, it seems like. We have made an idol out of our Rome. In fact, the, the, much of the book of Revelation, I think, is an indictment of Rome. We spent an entire uh, Sunday evening on that. And the problem with promoting empire is that it distracts us from the kingdom of God in order to promote the kingdom of man. Think about it. In chapter 18, we, we see this. The merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple of cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine, flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses and chariots, slaves, and that is human souls. If you can read the rest of chapter 18, the, 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 the economy is wrecked and the people weep for their idol has been thrown down. This is the problem with empire. We, we, we set up the kingdom of man and we say, herein lies my heaven. What we discover is it is no heaven at all. History has proven this repeatedly. For, for a reason I can't explain, I've all of a sudden gotten really fascinated into the, the kings and queens of England, particularly a certain period of time. Um, going to, let's say, the 15th century to, let's say, the 17th, 18th century. Um, and, and even in Scotland, like some of them, Mary, Queen of Scots, uh, and she, of course, she gave birth to King James VI of Scotland, who became James I of England, who united the, the two kingdoms, so it's still united today. He's the King James of the King James Bible. But I, I, I find that the Tudors fascinating, Henry VIII and his dad, and, 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 and of course, he had six wives and and all that sort of stuff. I find all that fascinating. But, but if you ever really studied the War of the Roses, let, let me give you, if, if I'm getting it right, I get confused, I, but I think I understand it. The War of the Roses is a fight for the throne of England. It starts with the Lancaster family. They have the right to the throne of England until the York family take it from them. They have one king, uh, Edward, I believe his name. He has a son, but his son doesn't become king. The... Uh, Tudors become king after that. And the Tudors become kings because they got, uh, they got in with the Lancasters who hated the Yorks. Are you lost yet? That's sort of the point, isn't it? Now, the Yorks, the Tudors, or Lancasters, which of those three families are, are now occupy the throne of England? None of them. None of them. It's the House of Windsor. Queen Elizabeth is of the House of Windsor. The House of Windsor started in the year 1901. 
And there's all this history of everyone killing each other and warring against each other. Civil war constantly is what the War of the Roses is all about. Even in our own nation, we spend, a, we spend a year hanging on every word of elected and unelected officials. We both took everything said as gospel or we criticize everything they said and did. The kingdom of men is weak. The kingdom of men is subject to violence, oppression, injustice, and it is temporary. But when a nation trusts an empire, it will victimize others and be a victim itself. This is clear in Revelation. The day will come, John predicts, Rome will come crashing down. It's the way every empire goes. So why trust in it? And if that's true for Rome, it's true for every empire following. This is what we argued. That going all the way into the future to, to if there is this final empire and leader and antichrist, all that sort of stuff. Guess what? It too will come crashing down. Why then do we put so much energy and spend so much time of our eyeballs in front of a screen soaking it all in thinking my hope is in this lighting box? Why do we do that? It's false religion of false empire. There's also false idols. We see this with the beast and the dragon. Uh, for the sake of time, I want to read chapter 13, verse 1 through 6, but, but we won't take the time to do that. But in our reading of it several weeks ago, we concluded the beast represents political power, past, present, future, however you want to interpret it. The dragon, a demonic spiritual power, represents the devil. But both come together to corrupt the nations and to lead them astray. But this is not seen in Revelation by policy. It's seen in worship. And the point is that we will either worship our creator or we will worship its, his creation. That can mean government and policy or a host of other things. The dragon never tries to keep us from worshiping. But rather, he wants us to worship the wrong thing. After I, if, if you really considered or ever heard the term the great awakening, are you familiar with this term? It's, 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 I've probably said it before publicly, but... but this cultural moment we live in where uh, everything down is up and everything up is down, right, um, um, is called, uh, you, you know, you've heard the phrase that I'm woke, you know, because I hold to these, these sort of doctors. Oh, that is, it's, it's religious language. The great awakening comes from a religious history. You ever heard of the great awakening? The Great Awakening was a series of revivals, two Great Awakenings in, in the United States. Uh, the first one led by Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, and, and John Wesley, John and Charles Wesley, uh, in, in England and in America. They were religious revivals. Baptists grew in, in incredible numbers in Pioneer, Kentucky, and West during the Second Great Awakening uh, during this time because of their call for, for repentance and, 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 and new birth and all that sort of stuff. And so, so this is religious language. We now call it the New Awakening. Why? Because the call to be woke is a conversion experience. So you can get on the ticky-tack if you want to, or you can get on your Facebook if you want to, and one says, I finally realize that, that I need to be woke. What you're hearing in religious language is conversion. Much in the same way we would ask someone to come forward and confess Christ prior to their baptism. I believe Christ risen from the dead. I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So too, if you can get on your, your phone and, and, and give your conversion experience into wokeness, then you're accepted by the church of wokeness. It's religion. All of it is simply religion. You have books to read. You have doctrines to believe. You have, you have people that you need to listen to and trust in, pastors if you want to call them. This is all religious language. It is 
worship. So Revelation warns us that, that there, is a, there is a temptation constantly to draw our worship away from the Savior. Whether that be false religion, whether that be false empire, whether that be false idols. But what we need to do instead is we need to worship God. We see that in chapter 22, don't we? Worship God. And I would argue that is probably the central message of Revelation. If you could put Revelation in two words, I think it would be that. Worship God. Notice, first of all, that in Revelation there is the, the call of the people of God to worship. We see that worship is a spiritual discipline. Whenever we think of spiritual disciplines, we think of reading your Bible and praying and, and if you're not Baptist, fasting, things like that. But what is clear in the Bible is that worship is a spiritual discipline, which means we must cultivate it, we must practice it, and we must make it a priority. If you want to grow in intimacy with God, you must worship the Savior. But we also see in Revelation, particularly uniquely in Revelation, is that worship is warfare. The martyrs under the altar are not there because they died in battle. They are there because they died promoting the God they worship. We see this in the, in the seven churches, didn't we? In chapter 2, verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Right? Satan, of course, is the dragon. What is the throne? It's the throne of the beast. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you. These martyr saints, they're, they're not soldiers with, with swords and armor. They're Christians with Bible and a heart full of Jesus. Worship is warfare. We've grown comfortable in a nation that largely tolerates religious expression. And, but throughout its history, Christian worship was an act of warfare. From Daniel in Babylon, to Paul in Ephesus, to Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms, to Jim Elliot in Ecuador, worship is warfare. Read the scripture with the understanding that worship is warfare, and you will better understand the, the war imagery in scripture. After all, Jesus shows up in Revelation, not on a donkey, but on a white stallion, armed ready for war. That means if you really want to fight the culture wars, you'll do it on your knees in prayer and worship more than you will in the voting booth. I'm not saying those things aren't important. I'm saying if you really want to fight the culture wars, you will be with the power of God and not with the power of a political party. Think about how often in the Bible we see military language and warfare language, the conquest of Canaan, the armor of God, Jesus on the white horse. All this makes sense if we see the spiritual discipline of worship as warfare. Finally, we see worship as the conclusion of history. Revelation 15, uh, verse 4. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. This is a major theme of Scripture, isn't it? What is it that Paul said? The day will come when every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is the ultimate point, isn't it? You can get distracted by all the judgments and the woes and the bowls and all that sort of stuff, but at the end of history, whatever your interpretation of Revelation is, it results in the nations bowing down before the throne, saying Jesus is Lord. What are some points of application here? I just want to make two. I think it's two. The first is that worship is an essential part of our lives. We hear every day that race, 
economics, and sexuality are essential parts of our lives. The gospel, as revealed in Scripture, would suggest no, actually, worship is. Those things pale in comparison to that of worship. You are called to worship. It is the priority of your life. And you will either worship Christ risen from the dead, the creator, or you will worship the creature. Secondly, worship isn't boring. One of the common complaints I hear every time I I teach and preach on heaven, there's usually someone who will come up and say, look, let's be honest. If all we're going to do when we get to heaven is have a hymn sing, isn't that a little boring? Look, just between us girls, okay, when I was growing up, we had a fifth Sunday hymn sing. And sometimes it was at our church, sometimes it was at another church in our association. I despise those things. When I was a kid, okay, it's, it's different now. Uh, when I was growing up, I thought an hour plus of people who sing poorly, convinced they don't sing poorly. It, it was like American Idol for like an hour and a half, you know? And, and now I'm, I'm being goofy, of course, but, but I just didn't like it as a kid. And, and then you hear, you open up your Bible like, oh, and, oh, oh when we get to heaven, we're going to be doing a lot of singing. That, that don't sound too enticing. But of course, this sort of complaint reveals the real problem, isn't it? I heard a comedian once say, you know, um, you know they tell you that money can't buy you happiness, but it can buy you a jet ski. Have you ever seen anyone not happy on a jet ski? Well, I think that humorous point he's making is actually a a powerful point. When we are in true worship, we are never bored. And the reason we find worship boring is because we've never been in true worship. Go back to, to, to when we're in a football stadium, at the basketball arena, or wherever it is, and we've got hands lifted, cheering at the top of our lungs, encouraging the players to do more and more, how entertained we are. Would anyone come and say, you know, this worship experience you're having, isn't it boring? You're like, no, that's, that's not boring. I mean, you, when we see Christ risen from the dead, scars in his wrist and his feet and his side, and pure white on the throne, the word that we will proclaim will not be a word that is boring, but the word of glory. For worship isn't boring, and it never is boring. Thus, if we find worship boring, can we truly say we have worshipped him? Have you ever noticed that Christians have a long history of writing songs? You ever notice we've never debated if we should sing songs? Have you ever really thought about this? Within Christianity, there is a rich musical tradition. I mean, that should be obvious, right? Central to our worship service is music, right? And it's a very important part of, of worship. And singing, and we sing together. That's because historically, we've always been a people who sing. In fact, in our Bible, we have an entire book dedicated to music. It has musical notes in it, musical other kinds of notes in it. Not notes like a musical note, but a note tells you what to do in the song. I don't know anything about music, so forgive me for not having the right lingo. I have an entire book dedicated to this. Not only that, but within the narrative of Scripture, we have various songs. We get to Revelation, and, and, they, and new songs have to be written. So, of course, throughout church history, what do we discover? When people get redeemed, they write songs. Martin Luther uh, says that every good theologian is also a hymn writer. I'm clearly not a good theologian. But he has written some some of the uh, hymns that we still sing today, like A Mighty Fortress is Our God. To this day, we are writing uh, music to reflect the truth we have revealed in Scripture. Now, we can debate whether or not it's good music 
are worthy to sing it in our church. But, but clearly there's a tradition that where there is faith, there is music. What songs do you think atheists sing? That's not a rhetorical question because I've got an answer for you. An atheist hymn has been written. And it's been written by comedian Steve Martin. Do you know he was in a bluegrass band? I actually watched it. It was on one of the late shows years ago, one of the other guys. But I watched it and I downloaded the lyrics. Can I read to you? The, the song is called Atheists Don't Have No Songs. I'd like to read it to you. Christians have their hymns and pages. Have a Nagilas for the Jews. Baptists have the rock of ages. Atheists just sing the blues. Romantics play Claire de Lune. Born again sing he is risen. But no one ever wrote a tune for godless existentialism. Some folks sing a Bach katana. Lutherans get Christmas trees. Atheist songs add up to nada. But they do have Sundays free. Like, it's blasphemy, but I do find it a little funny. Pentecostals sing, sing to heaven. Gothics had the book of scrolls. Numerologists count, count the seven. Atheists have rock and roll. For atheists, this is the chorus. For atheists, there is no good news. They'll never sing a song of faith. In their songs, they have a rule. The he is always lowercase. I think in his humor, Steve Martin is actually on to something. We were meant to worship. We were meant to sing. We were meant to praise. But when you rob the object of such affection, what are you left with in the end? I think Revelation has the answer to that, don't they? You have nothing until you come. To the Creator, who is our Redeemer, who is our Judge. The Lion Lamb upon the throne holds us in His hands. Let's pray.